Well, there was a father who was trying to teach his four-year-old son, John 3.16, and he said, son, we're going to go over this, and I'll say the verse, and you repeat it, and we'll keep doing this, and you fill in the missing words. And so he began, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And they were walking through this verse, kind of sentences, uh, little segments at a time, and on one time he said, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting, and the little boy called out, fun. (laughs) Now, as you think about what that little boy said, he was actually pretty close. Because in John 10.10, Jesus Christ said, I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. And as you think about what that's saying to us, why do so many of us as Christians go through life looking like we've been run over by a truck? In his book, Laugh Again, Chuck Swindoll says this, Have you ever noticed the looks on the average Sunday morning crowd? One word comes to mind, grim. There they are, rows of overcast faces with the forecast for dreary to mildly depressing days with little or no chance of any laughter. Swindoll goes on to say, but let's be fair. It's not just churchgoers. Ours is a world of long faces and aching hearts that is crying out for a morsel of joy, a crumb of encouragement. It's just that you would expect believers of all people to exhibit a contagious and enthusiastic joy, the kind that has little difficulty in convincing non-believers that Christ can make a difference in their life. Friends, how many of us have that kind of outlook in our own life? Today, as we uh, begin the book of Philippians and in the weeks ahead, what I want us to do is to learn how to tap into that kind of joy that God offers to us. As we look at this book in the Bible called Philippians, if you're in the New Testament, it goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And I invite you to begin to turn there to the book of Philippians. It's called the book of joy because the word joy and rejoice is found 16 different times in this small epistle. Now, if you're thinking, oh boy, that's just what I need, a book that's going to blow sunshine, written by a guy who hasn't had to deal with any of the heartaches of life like I have, maybe you don't know the Apostle Paul. Because as Paul was writing the book of Philippians, he wasn't sitting on a beach in the Bahamas. He was in a prison cell where he was facing the possibility of death. And yet, even in the midst of those circumstances, Paul was able to have joy. And in this letter, he shares how we can have that joy in our life as well. In Philippians 1, 1 through 7, he begins by saying, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. You know, as we start a letter like this, and that's what this is, it's, it's a New Testament letter. It's easy for us to forget sometimes that what we're actually doing is reading somebody else's mail. Do you realize that? And, and what we find here in verse 1 is the envelope. It begins by telling us who the letter is from, Paul and Timothy. 
Now, Paul is the one who's being guided by the Holy Spirit to write this letter. But he mentions Timothy because Timothy was a well-known minister and pastor to this group. He was one of the ones who helped Paul when the church was founded. And he ministered to those in Philippi. Later in 2.19, you're going to see where Paul says he hopes to send Timothy back to minister to them again. Now, as he says from Paul and Timothy, do you notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't say from Paul and Timothy, superstars. From Paul and Timothy, the founding pastors of the church. What he says is from Paul and Timothy, Paul a servant. The New American Standard Translation I'm using says a bondservant. As, as Paul writes this, he's, he's doing it not to say I'm, I'm super spiritual, but what he's doing is he's saying, I'm a servant. A bond servant was literally a slave that had attached themselves to a home for a lifetime of service. He, he said, I'm not the master, but I want to remain and serve you. A bond servant was one who would go to the master, and when their time of indenturement was done and they were to be set free, it was a voluntary lifetime commitment. And they would go to the doorpost of the house, and they would put their ear against the doorpost of the house. And the person would take a, a big awl, a, a kind of a leather punch-looking thing, and, and they would take the, the bottom of the ear, and they would drive this nail through their ear, literally into the doorpost of the house, attaching them to the home. Now, they wouldn't leave them there like that. What they would do is they would pull it out, and it was the original form of plugging. Do you know what plugging is? It's those big round things that people put in their ears and make a big hole, right? That looks real pretty, doesn't it? Well, what it does is, for a person in that day, they would have this big hole that was left in their ear, and everywhere they walked on the street, people would be able to see this mark, this sign that said, I've attached myself as a servant to someone, to serve them for life. And so it was an outward sign of their commitment. Now, for those of us who call ourselves Christian, this is a great picture of what our commitment to God should look like. Just as a bond servant in the past had an outward sign that everybody could see, we as believers should have some type of outward sign where people who look at us say, you look different. There's, there's something about you. What is it? And it gives us an opportunity to share about our faith in Christ and our commitment to him. As you think about your own life, does it show to others? And as you think about this idea of being a servant, a bond servant, one who has willingly committed themselves to the house of the Lord, does that show in our life as well? Are we those who serve freely with our life and with our labors? Or as you see opportunities to serve, like was just highlighted this morning with Vacation Bible School, do you kind of duck your head and say, I'm not going to do that, I can't be with kids all week? Or do you sit there and say, wow, what an opportunity? Every year we see between on the low end around the high 20s all the way into the 40s and even one year, 50 kids who came to Christ during that week. And do you look at this and say, this is an opportunity where I can invest my life for a week and have a great time, a lot of fun, and see eternal fruit? Are we those whose lives uh, show that we're a servant? Many of you here have heard of the Navigators. They're an organization that is known for discipleship. And one of the past presidents was named Lauren Sandy. And Lauren Sandy was known as a servant leader, so much so that people would come to him and say, I want to I learn how to be a servant leader like you. And there was a very prominent businessman who came to Sandy one day 
And as he was learning God's word and learning how to do this, and he, he said to Sandy, he said, how do you know when you fully developed a servant's heart? And Sandy looked at this man and he said, by how you act when you're treated like one. So you think about your life. When people treat you like a servant, how do you respond? For Paul and Timothy, being a bondservant was some, wasn't some empty title to sound spiritual, but it was something that showed in their life. And they said it's a badge of honor. To be called a bondservant of the Lord was a high and glorious title to them. And just as a, a hole in their ear would have shown by the way they lived their life, it was shown to everybody who they belonged to and who they served. Now, as Paul's writing, we see who it's from, Paul and Timothy. Now we see the two part of the envelope because he says to the saints, to the saints who are in Philippi. Now, sometimes we think of the word saints and we think it's some holy hermit high up on a mountainside, right? Somebody who's been canonized and put into that that rarefied air of a special man or woman who lived on this earth. That's not what the word saints mean. Saints literally mean one who has been set apart to service. Every one of you here who is a believer in Jesus Christ is a saint. Did you know that? You can turn to one another and say, I'm Saint Roger. Who are you? (laughs) And this is what Paul was saying. He says, to the saints, to those in Philippi who are believers in Christ, you have been set apart, consecrated to God's service. And, And as he greets this group of saints, you see there's special mention as well to the elders and deacons. These were the leaders in the church. And Paul is saying to the leaders as well, you need to be servants. You need to serve the people as you serve the Lord. And as Paul begins, he gives a blessing. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you get a, a letter, you know, especially one of the old-fashioned letters that come in the mail, Do you just kind of go right over that first line where it says, dear so-and-so or beloved? We just pass right over that, don't we? And as we read this opening line, it'd be very easy for us to read, grace to you and peace from God. Okay, let's get on to the meat. Well, this is the meat. Because when he says grace to you, he's talking about God's unmerited favor to those of us who are sinners, those of us who were far from God, those of us who were lost and without hope, and he says, grace. He says, linger over that concept for a moment. We just celebrated Easter last week. We celebrated how the tomb was empty, and it's so easy for us to put that in the rearview mirror and forget about it. But what Paul says is linger and think about God's great grace to you. And then he says, peace, peace. What does the word peace really mean? In its earliest form, peace meant to bind together. It communicated the idea of being so closely bound together with someone or something that harmony were to result. Let me give you an example. You've got two pieces of wood here. And if you take two pieces of wood and you put them together and you were to tie them, glue them, wrap them, whatever, that would be a sign of peace because they were bound together. But if you take two objects or two people and they don't have this peace in their life, when they move in opposite directions, what happens? There's friction, right? And this is the picture that he gives here. He says, peace, you've been bound together to one another. You've been bound together in God. Think about your marriage. If you're in a a marriage relationship where you're moving in opposite directions... There's friction, right? 
But if you're together and you're moving of one mind, one accord, then there's peace no matter what the movement. It's the same thing with others. If there's somebody in your life that there's friction with, you're moving in opposite directions. But if you're bound together, and it's the same in our relationship with God. If we're, if we're sinning, if we're moving in an opposite direction than God wants, there's friction. But what God says is, if you're bound together, if you understand grace, if you're residing in my grace and you're with me, then we'll move together up and to the right to where I want you to go. And this is the picture of what Paul is communicating as he says grace to you, as he says peace to the believers. He's giving this image of what it means. And as you think of Paul and Timothy, when they say we are bond servants with you, there was no friction between the people and their pastors because they were bound together of one mind, one accord, walking and working together. Now, as you think about Paul who was in prison facing death, he says, I have peace. Now, he may not have liked the location. He may not have liked the circumstances of his life. But what he was saying is in the midst of this, as much as I want to chafe against it, as much as I want to get out of here, he says, God, you have me here for a reason. And so I'm going to be bound to to you. I'm going to reside in you. And as I do so, even in the midst of hardship and suffering, there is peace. Peace in my life because I'm walking with you through this. Later in verse 7, he says to the Philippians, I have you in my heart. So again, he's joined together with them. So there's no friction. And in verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now reading that, you you might make the mistake of thinking that Paul's time in Philippi has just been, been peaches and cream. This is one of those honeymoon pastorates that you hear about. That there's been no conflict, no problem in the church at all. But again, if you look through the scriptures, you find in the second half of Acts chapter 16 that after Paul founded the church in Philippi, suddenly things went sideways for him. What what happened there was Paul was falsely accused. He was beaten. He was thrown into jail. After God sent an earthquake to free him, Paul was told by the city officials, you need to get out of town. You need to leave. He was thrown out of the city. And yet Paul says, as I think of my time there in Philippi, I thank God in all, all my remembrance of you. Had Paul been hit in the head one time too many? Had he forgotten what the hardships were there in that city? No. What he said is, I've chosen to focus on certain things. I bound myself together with God. And because of that, I'm, I'm seeing his purpose Later in Philippians 4, 8, he writes, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. You see, Paul had trained his mind to focus on those things, the positive things, the good things. It wasn't that he he was faking happiness. What he said is, I'm going to forget the things that are moving in an opposite direction of what God wants, and I'm going to focus on the things that he does want. And because of that, Philippians 4, 7 says, he had the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. This peace, as we've already seen, comes when we're not moving in the opposite direction of what God wants. As Paul rested in God's hand, trusting in him, he was being carried through the storm. Do you understand that picture? He wasn't trying to get out from under it. What he said is, God, you've got me in your hand. You've sheltered me, as John 10, 28 through 29 says, as he's closed his hand around us. 
And God the Father has closed his hand around. He says nothing can snatch him out of that. And Paul said, as we go through the fire, as we go through the difficulty, God, you're carrying me in your hand. And there's peace because I'm resting in that. Ella Wheeler Cox wrote a poem once. It was called The Winds of Fate. In it, she says, one ship sails east and one ship sails west. Regardless of how the winds blow, it is the set of the sail and not the gale that determines the way to go. As you think about that picture, every one of us here has winds blowing in our life. And they can be contrary winds that could blow us to the rocks of destruction, or they could be winds that can be harnessed for good. Think of it in terms of this. Every one of us in our lives will have or has had something hard happen to us, hasn't it? Friends, suffering is inevitable, but misery is an option. Do you realize that? Suffering is inevitable, but misery is an option. Our reaction to the circumstances depends on what is in us. Think of it this way. If we were in the middle of one of our Texas summers and you were to go outside and it's over 100 degrees and the the sidewalk is probably around 120 and you were to take a stick of butter and lay it on the sidewalk, what's going to happen to that butter? It's going to melt. Now, if I take a lump of clay and I set it on the same sidewalk next to the stick of butter, what happens to the lump of clay? It hardens. It's the same circumstances, the same sun, the same heat. But what determines the reaction is the makeup of the item. The butter melts, the clay hardens. When the refining fires of life hit us as believers, what happens to us? Do we allow God to do his purifying and refining work, burning away the dross and the things that don't belong? Or do we harden ourselves to God? As Cox says, it is the set of the sail and not the gale that determines the way we go. When the storm winds of life blow, we can let them blow us closer to God or away from him. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary, put it this way. He said, it doesn't really matter how great the pressure is. It only matters where the pressure lies. See to it that you never let it come between you and the Lord. Then the greater the pressure, the more it presses you to his breast. The picture there is if you see Christ as being here, the cross, or, or he himself, and you're here, and the wind is pushing this way, it, it pushes you closer to him. We become conformed to the image of his son. But if we let that wind blow this way, it pushes us away from God. It's up to us to determine, will we turn to God in those times of trial and be pushed closer and conformed to him, or will we turn our back on him and let the pressure push us away from God. When it came to Paul, he had good memories of his time with the Philippians because he, he let his mind dwell on the positive things. You know, when Paul was thrown into the prison cell, as he was beaten, as he was there in the dungeon, Paul could have been in misery. He could have said, this is unfair. This is a terrible place to be. But instead, what did he do? He said, I rejoice that God has put me in a place where the gospel has not gone out before. Remember how he shared with the Praetorian Guard and the others? He said, I've been given access to some previously unchurched people. This is a completely unreached group, and I'm here in the prison. Thank you, God, for this opportunity. One of the reasons Paul was thrown into the prison, you'll recall, is he had cast out uh, the demonic spirit in a servant girl who would, was being used to, for divination. And the, the master said, she's no good to me anymore. She can't tell things, and so I've lost my income. And Paul could have said, you know, it's all that woman's fault. She was oppressed, and, and, I, and I got her out of that bad situation, and now I'm in a bad situation because of it. 
because of it. But instead, Paul said, I rejoice that this woman has been set free from the bondage she was in. Do you see how our focus can change the circumstances? It doesn't, it doesn't have to change the actual event. What it changes is our reaction. Is it going to blow us to God or away from God? And Paul was one who had this perspective. And all of us here today have that choice as well. We could say, woe is me when, when hard things happen, or we can do as Paul and look for the, the silver cloud in the storm, the silver lining in the cloud, and say, I'm going to look at this as a reason to rejoice. A pastor by the name of Matthew Henry was robbed one day. And as uh, Matthew Henry reflected on this experience, that night he was writing in his journal, and this is what he wrote. He said, let me be thankful. First, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. And third, because although they took all that I had, it wasn't much. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. Friends, is that our perspective? Do we look at things and say, what are the things I can dwell on that are positive here? What are the good things that can come from this? This was Paul and his perspective, which is why he could rejoice in his present circumstance as well as looking in the past. Now, not everything in Philippi was bad. There were good things that happened in Philippi. Have you ever read about a lady by the name of Lydia? Lydia was a woman there in Philippi. And Paul could look back and say, my time there allowed me to connect with some, some folks who are now multiplying the ministry. Lydia was one who served the Lord, had the church meet in her home, and the ministry continued. So Paul could look back and say, if my time had never been in Philippi, I never would have met somebody like Lydia. In verses 4 and 5, Paul says of people like her, that he was always offering prayer with joy. And my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. As you think about that, what Paul is writing there, how many of you would say that somebody in ministry could write words like that of you? How many people do you know? Pastors, missionaries, others that are not even within the door of Wayside, different ministries you may support outside of Wayside. How many would say that when they think of those who are participating with them, that have been a source of joy and encouragement, that it is your face, your name that comes to their mind? Are you somebody that a, a ministry leader could pick out of the crowd, not, not a vocational pastor, but somebody in an area of ministry, that again, as they're thinking about their, their key servants, they would think of you? As you look at your life, ask yourself if you're known for the way that you serve others, whether it's here at church, out in the world, where you work, where you go to school. You know, sadly, sometimes people are known in a church or out in the community not because of their positive participation, but instead they're known because of the problems they create. And rather than being known as someone like that, we should seek to be like Lydia, who was known for her productive partnership. Paul will say later in this letter of her, she was one who supported him in ministry, financially, in other ways. And so he had great joy as he thought about ladies like Lydia and others in the church. Now, as I talk about being a support... Let me say this very clearly. It doesn't mean that you never point out a problem when you see it in ministry. Please do not think that we don't want to hear when something is not going well. As leaders at Wayside, we want to know when something is, is broken, whether it's something around the facility or it's the way a ministry is operating or whether there's a way we can improve it. We want to know. 
We need to know. We want to make the ministry better. We want to know those things. But as you do so, one way to help to make things better is by being a part of the solution. Offering to be a part of what you see going wrong. And when you share, do it in a spirit of grace. Not only in the way you present your concern, but also in giving grace and recognizing that God is still at work in all of us. Molding and growing us to what he wants us to be. That's what Paul's talking about in Philippians 1.6. Look at what he says there. He says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he, that is God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says, we're not done yet. We're under construction. Have you ever gone by a construction site, whether it's a road improvement project or walked into a place that's being renovated, and, and they say, pardon our progress, right? And, and what do they usually have with the sign? There's a picture of what's coming, right? They want you to say, now look, I know it's a mess right now. As you look around, things don't look very good. I know there's a lot of inconveniences. But I want you to see what's coming. Because this is going to be better. And it's going to be worth the wait. And that's what God is saying to us as believers. He says, you're you're a construction site. You're under work. And, And Paul says, as I look ahead to what's coming, it's going to be great. In the Bible, there are are three steps to uh, what God is doing with us. Theologically, the first step is called justification. You can think of bookends. If you've ever heard the word justification, what it means is to be justified, to be declared righteous. When we become a believer, when we cross the line of faith and accept Jesus as our Savior, we are declared righteous. Some people say justification is just as if I never sinned. That's not quite right because we did sin. It did cost God uh, his son's death at the cross to save us. So what God did is, at justification, he said, you're declared righteous. Your sins are forgiven. They're washed away. That's here at the moment we step into our relationship with God. Now, at the far end of the process is something called glorification. Glorification is that day that we die or the rapture happens, and we leave this earth and we step into heaven. And at that moment, we are made just like Christ. We look like him. We don't become God like him. That's, that's what the Mormons say. That's not what the Bible says. We become like him in the sense that our sin nature is gone, our, our falling away is gone. And so that's glorification. Now, between justification and glorification, very few of us die at the moment of salvation. There's something called sanctification. You can think of that as this process in life. And you've maybe heard the Christians talk about somebody backsliding. You see, when we come to faith in Christ, not everything is up and to the right. There are times that we are going to go backwards in our walk with God. There are going to be times we sin. We don't ever lose our salvation. That is bought and paid for secure. But we can lose rewards that we'll get in heaven. We can uh, become not like Christ wants us to be. The process, as we live our life, God wants us each time, each day, each opportunity to be moving more and more toward Christ's likeness. So when that day comes, it's as small a step as it can be from where we are to where God wants us to be. And so as Paul is talking about this process, he says, you are saved and God will perfect it. God will glorify you. He will complete the process. This is, um, as, as God did his finished work for us on the cross, he paid that penalty of death. As you look at Romans 8, 28, it describes this process for us. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
Now, what is his purpose for us? His purpose is that we would be like Christ. This is what verse 29 of Romans says. For whom he foreknew, these he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among the many brethren. So do you see that process? He says that when those hard things happen in your life, it is that refining fire. God is moving you and me to Christ's likeness. And this is what Paul is outlining for us. As you think about your life and those, those things that come, have you ever put together a puzzle? And if you're sorting the puzzles, have you ever reached down and found a, a black, jagged piece of a puzzle? And as you look at it, you hold it up and you go, this isn't very pretty. I don't like this. I'm going to throw that away. Is that what you do? Or do you hold on to it and say, you know, I don't like this piece. I don't know where it belongs. But I know that somewhere in this puzzle, the picture will be incomplete without it. And that's what God does with us. As we go through life, he looks at those difficult things in our life. And he says, you don't know yet where this goes, but I've got the puzzle box here in heaven. I've got the picture of your life, and I know exactly what is needed to complete the puzzle. And this is a part of that, and he gives it to us. And our, our job is to say, God, I don't like it. I don't know where it fits. But like Paul in prison, he says, okay, it's part of the picture. I know that you have a purpose for this. And knowing this helps Paul say, the construction site is a mess right now, but I know God is completing a masterpiece, which is where his confidence and joy comes from in verse 6. In verse 7, he turns from talking about the suffering to those who supported him, which we'll come to next time. What I want to close with today in verse 7 is where he again speaks of God's grace and he reminds them that they share in it. He says, you are all partakers of grace with me. What does it mean to be a partaker of grace? Well, as we come to the communion table now, we get a picture of what it means to be a partaker of grace. As we come to the communion table, what it does is it tells us what God's great grace meant for us. You've read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. For by grace we've been saved. Paul said, Grace and peace to you. Grace, God's unmerited favor. What God did when he died for us as he went to the cross to pay the penalty of death. As Romans tells us, the wages of sin is death. What I deserved, what you deserved, is to be eternally separated from God. But what God did for us is he gave his son to go to the cross to die in my place and yours, to pay that penalty of death for our sins. And as we come to the table today, what we're reminded of is God's great grace how God created peace as he took the broken relationship that we had as we were far from God and moving in opposite directions and he brought us together through his son, Jesus Christ. So as we come to the table now, we're going to hold a piece of bread representing his body and a cup representing his blood. And if you're here today and you've never taken that step of faith, you've never said to God, I'm a sinner and I'm far from you. God, I've been moving in opposite directions from you, but today... I recognize that you died for me. Jesus, you went to the cross and you paid the penalty in full. You removed my sin. I invite you to do so, to take the elements and to say to God, today, God, I'm taking that step of faith. I'm accepting you, Jesus. And for the rest of us who have done that before, 
as you hold those elements, I want you to look at them and recognize what it means for you and me that we are partakers of grace, that we are those who who are sharing in God's great gift to us. So take and hold those elements. If you have sin in your life that you've not confessed this week, use this time to talk to God and, and tell him that you're sorry. You're turning from that into him. Men, will you serve us? And we'll take the elements together in a moment. As we hold the elements in our hand, the bread representing the body of Christ and the grace and the peace that comes through it, listen to what Ephesians 2, 11 through 17 tells us. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. He says, you as Gentiles and you as Jews were far from one another. He says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have our access in one spirit to the Father. 
Friends, we were far from God. We were separated, and we were going in opposite directions. And he took the two, not just Gentiles and Jews, and put them together, binding them together and creating peace. But he took us who were far from God and bound us through the blood of Christ, through the body of Christ given, and created peace. As you take and hold this piece of bread representing the body of Christ, it represents the peace and the grace of God, eat it in remembrance of him. This cup represents his blood. His blood that was shed to wash away our sins, once again to remove the wrath, the enmity between us and God, to restore the relationship. Ephesians tells us through his blood we have peace. The blood of Jesus Christ, drink it in remembrance of him. Join me please as we close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your great grace. That unmerited favor that we did not deserve. That we who were far from you and without hope in the world were given the road home through you, Jesus. We thank you for your great love, your willingness to come, to die on the cross, to pay that penalty of death we owed for our sins. Not just to give us entrance into heaven, but to give us God that gift of abundant life. So, Lord, as we live our life today, as we wait for that day when we get to step into heaven and be made whole and new, would you help us through the sanctification process to live our lives in a way that we would be growing closer to you, that we would look more and more like your Son, whom we love and serve. Send us out now into the world to share the good news of how peace can be had through that of your Son. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. There are people at the front who would love to pray with you if you have a need in your life. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.